Chapter 3. First two, then what? How awesome. We have a quote by Ken Kesey from the Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test by Tom Wolfe. There are going to be times when we can't wait for somebody. Now, you're either on the bus or off the bus. It's an awesome quote. When we began the research project, we expected to find that the first step in taking a company from good to great would be to set a new direction, a new vision and strategy for the company, and then to get people committed and aligned behind that new direction. We found something quite the opposite. The executives who ignited the transformations from good to great didn't he already tell us that that's not, like, didn't... All right, all right. Let's not get excited. Um, we found something quite the opposite. The executives who ignited the transformations from good to great did not just figure out where to drive the bus, then get people. <laughs> he even used the same metaphor before with the fucking bus. Where to drive the bus, then get people to take it there. No, they first got the right people on the bus. Yeah, I remember, and I made a joke about segregation. And the wrong people off the bus, and then figured out where to drive it. They said, in essence, look, I don't really know where we, ta where we should take this bus, but I know this much. If we get the right people on the bus, <laughs> the right people in the right seats, wait, is there another element? And the wrong people off the bus, oh, that's right, that's right. Then we'll figure out how to take it someplace great. The good to great leaders understand three simple truths. First, if you begin with who rather than what, you can more easily adapt to a changing world. Uh, yeah, I'm just going to stop and say that like the Buddhist idea, would be, you know, I think would agree with him and say like once you have all the right people, what you have is already great. And it's just a matter of turning that into business. Is that Buddhist? It's related. If people join the bus primarily because of where it's going, and uh, what happens if you get 10 miles down the road and you need to change direction? You've got a problem. All right, this is more insightful than, than it sounds, really. Uh, but if people are on the bus because of who else is on the bus, then it's much easier to change direction. Hey, I got on this bus because of who else is on it. If we need to change direction to be more successful, fine with me. Yeah, I think... Um, I mean, I hesitate to expand on the ideas at all because I know he's going to draw it out, but I don't. Uh, I do like that because nothing ever goes exactly how you planned. So that's, that's an important point to make. Second, if you have the right people on the bus, the problem of how to motivate and manage people largely goes away. The right people don't need to be tightly managed or fired up. They will be self-motivated by the inner drive to produce the best results and to be part of creating something great. Third, if you have the wrong people, it doesn't matter whether you discover the right direction. You still won't have a great company. Great vision without great people is irrelevant. Consider the case of Wells Fargo. Wells Fargo began its 15-year stint of spectacular performance in 1983, but the foundation for the shift dates back to the early 70s, when then-CEO Dick Cooley began building one of the most talented management teams in the industry. The best team, according to investor Warren Buffett. Cooley foresaw that the banking industry would eventually undergo wrenching change, but he did not pretend to know what form that change would take. So instead of mapping out a strategy for change, he and Chairman Ernie Arbuckle focused on, quote, injecting an endless stream of talent, end quote, directly into the veins of the company. They hired outstanding people whenever and wherever they found them, often without any specific job in mind. 
That's how you build the future, he said. If I'm not smart enough to see the changes that are coming, they will, and they'll be flexible enough to deal with them. Cooley's approach proved prescient. No one could predict all the changes that would be wrought by banking deregulation. Yet when these changes came, no bank handled these challenges better than Wells Fargo. At a time when its sector, the banking industry, fell 59% behind the general market, Wells Fargo outperformed the market by over three times. Carl Reichert, who became CEO in 83, attributed the bank's success largely to the people around him, most of whom he inherited from Cooley. As he listed members of the Wells Fargo executive team that had joined the company during the cooley Reichardt era, we were stunned. Nearly every person had gone on to become CEO of a major company. Bill Aldinger became the CEO of Household Finance. Jack Grundhofer became the CEO of U.S. Bank Corp. Isn't this fascinating? Frank Newman became CEO of Bankers Trust. Richard Rosenberg became CEO of Bank of America. Bob Jost became CEO of Westpac Banking, one of the largest banks in Australia? And later became Dean of the Graduate School of Business at Stanford University? Not exactly your garden variety executive team? R.J. Miller, an active... <laughs> We're done, aren't we? R.J. Miller, an active Wells Fargo board member for 17 years, told us Wells Fargo reminded him of the famed whiz kids recruited to Ford Motor Company in the late 40s, of which Miller was a member, eventually becoming president of Ford. Wells Fargo's approach was simple. You get the best people, you build them into the best man. <laughs> so basically, when asked about Wells Fargo, when asked about Something, uh, you know, when he thought about someone doing a good job, he just compared it to, to his own. Well, they're great. You know, they remind me of me. Wells Fargo's approach was simple. You get the best people. Yeah, you told us. You get the best people, you build them into the best managers, and you accept the fact that some of them will be recruited to become CEOs of other companies. Quite, so I guess that's saying, as opposed to, like, not allowing people to grow to their fullest extent because it, then they'll leave. Bank of which is so depressing that people think like that, but I guess they do, to some extent anyway. Bank of America took a very different approach. While Dick Cooley systematically recruited the best people he got his hands on, <laughs> I can't wait. Bank of America, according to the book Breaking the Bank, followed something called the quote weak general strong lieutenants model. Ah. <laughs> <sighs> I hope what follows is three pages of how fucking dumb the people they recruited were. If you pick strong generals for key positions, their competitors will leave. If you pick weak generals, placeholders, rather than highly capable executives, then the strong lieutenants are more likely to stick around. Whoa. I guess because they're hoping that the person will... They're like, I deserve this job. I'm going to stay around. That's fucked up. God, that makes me so depressed. They put people in positions where they know that they're overqualified and they're better than the person above them, so that motivates them to stay around just thinking they must eventually get a shot. That's so dark. The weak generals model produced a climate very different at Bank of America than one at Wells Fargo. Whereas the Wells Fargo crew... Jesus Christ, that that's so fucking dark. That's such a shitty fucking... Oh, God damn it. Oh, the humanity of that. 
whereas the Wells Fargo crew acted as a strong team of equal partners ferociously debating eyeball to eyeball in search of the best answers, the Bank of America weak generals would wait for directions from above. Oh, wait, did I get it? Let's look up. Is I thought a lieutenant was below... Lieutenant General ranks immediately below General and above Major General. Okay, yeah. List of comparative military ranks. Sorry, I, I just, this is very important. Okay, yeah, that's right. I mean, I know I was expanding on, uh, he didn't really talk about what it was yet, but, all right, well, let's just see. The Bank of America's weak generals would wait for directions from above. Sam Armacost, who inherited the weak generals model, described the management climate. I came away quite distressed from my first couple of management meetings. Not only couldn't I get conflict, I couldn't even get comment. They were all waiting to see which way the wind blew. A retired Bank of America executive described senior managers in the 70s as plastic people who'd been trained to quietly submit to the dictates of a domineering CEO. Later, after losing $1 billion in the mid-80s, Bank of America recruited a gang of strong generals to turn the bank around. And where did it find those strong generals? From right across the street at Wells Fargo. In fact, Bank of America recruited so many Wells Fargo executives during its turnaround that people inside began to refer to themselves as Wells of America. At that point, Bank of America began to climb upward again, but it was too little too late. That's right, they were never heard from again. From 73 to 98, while Wells Fargo went from build-up to breakthrough results, Bank of America's cumulative stock returns didn't even keep pace with the general market. I bet the people running it were barely billionaires. Wells Fargo versus Bank of America. Cumulative value of $1 invested. You, you just fucking told us. We don't need to know the exact... <laughs> Jesus Christ. Now you might be thinking, that's just good management, the idea of getting the right people around you. What's new about that? On one level, we have to agree. It's just old-fashioned good management. But what stands out with such distinction in the good-to-great companies are two key points that made them quite different. We have a box. To be clear, the main point of this chapter is not just about assembling the right team. That's nothing new. The main point is to first get the... <sighs> The main point is to first get the right people on the bus and the wrong people off the bus before you figure out where to drive. The second key point is the degree of sheer rigor needed in people's decisions in order to take a company from good to great. Yeah, I don't know what I was expecting, but first who is a very simple idea to grasp and a very difficult idea to do and most don't do it well it's easy to talk about paying attention to people decisions but how many executives have the discipline of david maxwell who held off on developing a strategy until he got the right people in place while the company was losing a one million every single business day with 56 billion of loans underwater when Maxwell became CEO of Fannie Mae during its darkest days, the board desperately wanted to know how he was going to rescue the company. Despite the immense pressure to act, to do something dramatic, to seize the wheel and start driving, Maxwell focused first on getting the right people on the Fannie Mae management team. His first act was to interview all the officers. He sat them down and said, Look, this is going to be a very hard challenge. I... <laughs> 
<laughs> this is in quotes. Like that's that is not eloquent. <laughs> that's fucking not eloquent. Look, this is going to be a very hard challenge. It sounds like it's translated from Japanese or something. I want you to think about how demanding this is going to be. If you don't think you're going to like it, that's fine. Nobody's going to hate you. I think there's an implied you'll be leaving, but that's kind of like an important thing to... uh, I mean, for someone who really elaborates, that's kind of an important point to just gloss over. Also, the fucking generals thing. Like, what the fuck? They didn't talk at all about... Like, why else would they want... I don't think most people would come to that same conclusion that I did, which isn't to say it's necessarily the one he was intending. I think it's it's a more, like, dark thing. Like, I don't... I'm not confident with the general's lieutenant thing that's what he was saying. He really did not elaborate on that, and I really wish he did. Maxwell made it absolutely clear that there would only be seats for A players who were going to put forth A-plus effort. And if you weren't up for it, you had better get off the bus. Get off now. Okay, just... I can objectively say, and get off now, is not necessary. Just say get off, just say get off the bus. One executive who had just uprooted his life and career to join Fannie Mae came to Maxwell and said, I listened to you very carefully, and I don't want to do this. He left and went back to where he came from. In all 14... Like, who just takes someone back like that? Is that a thing, really? In all, 14 of 26 executives left the company, replaced by some of the best, smartest, and hardest-working executives in the entire world of finance. The same standard applied up and down the Fannie Mae ranks as managers at every level increased the caliber of their teams and put immense peer pressure upon each other, creating high turnover at first when some people just didn't pan out. We had a saying, you can't fake it at Fannie Mae, said one executive team member. Either you knew your stuff or you didn't, and if you didn't, you'd just blow out of here. Wells Fargo and Fannie Mae both illustrate the idea that who questions come before what questions. Before vision, before strategy, before tactics, before organizational structure, before technology. Dick Cooley and David Maxwell both exemplified a classic level 5 style when they said, I don't know where we should take this company, but I do know that if I start with the right people, ask them the right questions, and engage them in vigorous debate, we will find a way to make this company great. I'll let that one slide. He didn't specifically talk about the debate before, but... Uh, Headline, Not a Genius with a Thousand Helpers. In contrast to the good-to-great companies, which built deep and strong executive teams, many of the comparison companies followed a, quote, genius with a thousand helpers, end quote, model. In this model, the company is a platform for the talents of an extraordinary individual. In these cases, the towering genius, the primary driving force in the company's success, is a great asset. As long as the genius sticks around... Sorry, I put too much inflection in that. It sounded like that was my own opinion. Uh, Let me do that again. As long as the genius sticks around. The geniuses seldom build great management teams for the simple reason that they don't need one and often don't want one. If you're a genius, you don't need a Wells Fargo caliber management team of people who could run their own shows elsewhere. No, you just need an army of good soldiers who can help implement your great ideas. However, when the genius leaves, the helpers are often lost. Or worse, they try to mimic their predecessor with bold, visionary moves, trying to act like a genius without being a genius, that prove unsuccessful. 
Eckerd Corporation suffered the liability of a leader who had an uncanny genius for figuring out what to do, but little ability to assemble the right who on the team. Jack Eckerd, blessed with monumental personal energy, he campaigned for governor of Florida while running his company, and a genetic gift for market insight and shrewd deal-making acquired his way from two stores in Wilmington, Delaware, to a drugstore empire over, of over a thousand stores spread across the southeastern United States. By the late 70s, Eckerd's revenues equaled Walgreens, and it looked like Eckerd might triumph as the great company in the industry. But then Jack Eckerd left to pursue his passion for politics, running for senator and joining the Ford administration in Washington. Without his guiding genius, Eckerd's company began a long decline, eventually being acquired by J.C. Penny. Ew! And I'll leave you with that.